Morning, everyone. There we go. Um, this morning's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 15 and going through to the end of the chapter. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Good morning. 
going to get my clicker out of my pocket. There it is. I'm going to start with a story. I don't know what that is about, but okay. Uh, I'm going to start with a story, and hopefully this will work. Which way do I point it, Pina? There we go. Um, the story's called The Good Simeon. Um, it's meant to remind you of a different story. <laughs> a typhoon had temporarily stranded a monkey on an island. In a secure, protected place while waiting for the raging waters to recede, he spotted a fish swimming against the current. It seemed obvious to the monkey that the fish was struggling and in need of assistance. Being of kind heart, the monkey resolved to help the fish. A tree precariously dangled over the very spot where the fish seemed to be struggling. At considerable risk to himself, the monkey moved far out on a limb, reached down and snatched the fish from the threatening waters. Immediately scurrying back to the safety of his shelter, he carefully laid the fish on dry ground. For a few moments, the fish showed excitement, but soon settled into a peaceful rest. Joy and satisfaction swelled inside the monkey. He had successfully helped another creature. What this story tells us negatively, Acts 17 tells us positively. We'll get back to the monkey later. Paul didn't plan on going to Athens, but persecution from the Jews in Thessalonica forced him and Silas to uh, travel to Berea, where their preaching was received more positively. However, those Thessalonians who had driven them out heard that the gospel was being preached nearby, and so they came to Berea and caused some trouble there. So Paul went, was put on a boat to sail to Athens, where he would wait for his companions to meet him. Did fear of more persecution prevent Paul from preaching? No, of course not. He continued on more or less as he had before, only this time with a local Athenian flavor. When Paul got to Athens, he's confronted by the idolatry that he sees there. He grew up as a devout Jew, so he's justifiably angered and upset by this. The second commandment explicitly forbids idolatry, so a Jew like Paul would certainly take this seriously. Idolatry is repugnant in the eyes of God. People are made in God's image, not the other way around. So idolatry dishonors God and the people who are practicing it. Paul's response to the idols in Athens, though, is instructive. He didn't ignore it, he didn't accept it, but he also didn't make a public display of his hatred of it. Paul couldn't just do nothing, but he knew that attacking the idols and the idolaters up front would not change any hearts or minds. He needed to be wise, tactical, and respectful in order to make a difference. We can learn a lot from Paul here. We are surrounded in our society by all manner of ungodliness, and it should appall us. We should be deeply troubled by it. But our response should be what one commentator calls restrained provocation. It's neither helpful nor God-honoring to ignore or to affirm ungodliness. If we are too passive and uncritical of our own culture, it strips the gospel of its power for people. On the other hand, it's also not helpful just to go out and publicly attack people who practice ungodliness. Jesus sent his disciples as sheep in the midst of wolves, telling them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
and we should be like that as well. So Paul does here what he did elsewhere. He goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. But then he goes out uh, into the marketplace to do some street evangelism, essentially. He's heard by some philosophers who want to give Paul's idea a proper hearing, so they take him to the Areopagus, a place where Athenian intellectuals will listen to any new idea that comes their way. And it looks kind of like that. In fact, exactly like that, because that's what it is. Um, (laughs) Paul is now in the cultural and intellectual center of Athens, which is the cultural and intellectual center of the ancient world. This is a big deal. He's speaking to a bunch of intellectual people who believe they have it all figured out, and he's about to preach the gospel to him, a message which is so radical, so foreign, so counterintuitive, and even offensive, that it just got him and Silas kicked out of Thessalonica and then later Berea. So what could one say in a situation like this? Well, here's what Paul says. Sorry, it's a bit small, but I need it all on one slide all at once. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made with human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made with human hands, uh, with human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has sent a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." This, this sermon has some interesting symmetry to it, so we kind of read it kind of from the outside in. Um, we start off with, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Paul starts off by making an observation about the culture into which he is preaching. They are very religious. It's not a criticism, not even a compliment, it's just an observation. It's a good hook. Let people know that you understand them. Someone once said, home is where you're understood, and it's good to make people feel at home. Next, Paul addresses a need that the Athenians have. Specifically, they're ignorant about God, and they know it. Now, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it, that Elvis Presley used to wear around his neck um, various religious symbols from different religions because he didn't want to miss out on heaven on a technicality. That's kind of what's happening here, that the Athenians have set up this altar to an unknown god, just in case. Um, Paul uses this ignorance as a springboard to talk about God. He also 
ends his sermon talking about ignorance, namely by saying that it's no longer a valid excuse for ignoring the true God. God has been patient and merciful by overlooking people's ignorance, but now he has revealed himself more fully in a man whom he raised from the dead. And this man is going to judge the world with justice. I'll let you figure out for yourself who that man is. So, as I said, ignorance is no longer an excuse. And only now, after addressing the Athenians' felt need, their acknowledged ignorance about God, is Paul ready to directly address their idolatry. God has no need of temples or images. In fact, it's unreasonable to think that he would. That's basically his point here. Idolatry is silly. I think one of the Old Testament passages from which Paul gets this idea is um, probably Isaiah 44, which is an excellent um, passage. It's a masterpiece in anti-idolatry reasoning, and I find it a bit funny in how absurd um, it, it shows idolatry to be. So um, later on, read Isaiah 44. It's a good one. But Paul doesn't just leave it at, idolatry is bad because I say so. No, he gives the Athenians reasons to accept his claims. If God really is God, then he is the one who gives humans life and breath and everything else. Paul even quotes some pagan Greek poetry to illustrate his point. In him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. How could we expect a God like this? to be constrained by needs like food or shelter. But there's still one more loose end for Paul to tie up. If God is so far beyond us, why would he care about us? Why would such a high God bother to judge lowly people? And that's where we get the bit in the middle. It's because God is and always has been personally and intimately involved in human concerns. He is responsible for our existence, for our nations, our histories. He's always been revealing himself to all people in some small way so that we would seek him imperfectly as we do. Doesn't this just cry out for God to reveal himself more clearly? Do you see the Jesus-shaped hole that Paul has left here, which... Presumably, in this, this is a summary. He would have filled that out more um, when he actually gave the sermon. Do you, do you notice anything strange about this sermon? Would this sermon be preached here? No. It's well, a, a good one to compare it to is Stephen's speech in Acts seven. When Stephen preached to the Jews, he argued that Jesus is the Messiah by showing how he fits in the context of a Jewish understanding of history. Imagine if Paul had preached that sermon to the Athenians here. How would that have gone down? Now, Paul preaching here to pagan philosophers argues that Jesus is the solution to the problems in their worldviews. He doesn't quote the Bible, not even once, although biblical themes are uh, imbued in his sermon. He quotes rather pagan poetry. To make his point, Paul appeals to the Athenians' culture by giving them the, a way into the gospel. He's showing them that the gospel isn't just for Jews like himself, but it's for Athenians too. An understanding of what culture is can help us think about this more clearly. So I'm going to uh, go to what Nick um, showed us a couple of weeks ago 
that uh, Leslie Newbing and Divine's culture as the sum total of ways of living developed by a group of human beings and handed on from generation to generation. And Paul Hebert defines culture as an integrated system of beliefs, feelings and values characteristic of our society. These systems are our mental maps of the world that define reality for us, which we use for guiding our lives. Culture gives us what we so desperately need in human life, a set of meanings. And so Paul is going into an Athenian culture which has a set of meanings different from his own. Um, and these definitions are technical, so um, like Nick, I'm going to simplify it with what he said. Culture is how we do things around here and what it means to be us. But not to be out-simplified, I'm going to shorten it even more. Um, I, I often use this definition of culture with my students. Culture is what's normal to a group of people. And as Nick said, you don't see your culture, you see things through your culture. And I think that's right. The way that you see the world is very strongly influenced by your culture, even if you don't know it. So if Paul had come to the Athenian philosophers quoting the Old Testament, this is what Isaiah said, this is what Moses said, they, their cultural glasses wouldn't have allowed them to even understand what he was saying. They couldn't have grasped the gospel if that's what he had done. So what he does instead is what we call contextualization. It's a nice big word. Everyone say contextualization. It just means adapting something to the context. Contextualization. Um, so Paul adapts the gospel message to the context in which he's preaching it. Like the monkey in the story I told earlier, which scooped a fish out of the water and put it on ground to help it, um, that's obviously not very helpful, and a failure to contextualize the gospel can actually turn people off the message. And I'm sure you can think of examples where you've seen that happen. Um, you know, in Rondo Mall, for example, that's a thing that um, several years ago was quite controversial. So here are two circles to help us get our heads around how Paul contextualized the gospel and how we can do it as well. Imagine that a Christian worldview is a circle, the red one. Um, what's at the center of the circle? Jesus, the gospel, the cross. That's what's at the center of our worldview. But that's not everything we believe and we do and we value, is it? There's other stuff. That's the rest of the circle. Things like our moral and ethical standards, um, religious practices, the language that we use. That's all the rest of the circle. And everyone we encounter will have their own circle as well, with something different at the center. That's the blue star there. If they're not Christians, then their center is going to be far away from ours. Because inevitably, they're not going to have the gospel at the center of their life. But invariably, there will be some overlap at the edges. So you see in the middle, you've got the red and the blue. There's a bit of purple in the middle where the two circles intersect. In the case of Paul and the Athenians, he found some overlap in their shared religiosity, in some of their understandings about God, and, and a few other things. So he focused on the overlap. That's not to say he affirmed their whole worldview. No, of course not. He was appalled by it. He argued strongly against it. But he wasn't afraid to show them where they had got it right. So focusing on the overlap, he acknowledged that. And then Paul told them that the gospel 
the centre of his own circle, made better sense of the overlap than their centre did. And I think that's where our main lesson is in today's passage. Now, I could go on about um, Stoicism and Epicureanism and, and all the intricacies of that, but most of you would die from boredom, so I'm not going to do it. Um, just, you get the idea, there's, there's stuff there in their circle and Paul's circle which is different, but there's stuff which, which um, overlaps. As we've heard several times over the past couple of months, it is our job as Christians to go out into the world, to cross the street, to make disciples of people everywhere. But not everyone will be able to accept the same presentation of the gospel. And it's obvious when, when you think about it, but we don't always think about it. So like Paul, we need to be prepared to reason with the scriptures from people who will find that persuasive. People like Jews and Muslims and JWs, people who respect the Bible, um, those are people that you can open the Bible with and, and reason directly from there. But we also need to be prepared to tailor the gospel message for a variety of people, our neighbours, our workmates, people in our sporting clubs, anyone who will listen. And when you think about it, most of these people don't care what the Bible says, do they? We can't assume, like you could have done in the Billy Graham days, that they even know what the Bible says, let alone believe it. So evangelism has two parts to it. We often think about the first part, which is preach the gospel. We need to make sure that what we are proclaiming is, in fact, the gospel. Know the message. But the second part, which we often forget, is we need to know our audience. We need to make sure that we are contextualizing the gospel. So do your homework. As far as it is up to you, make sure that the message you're preaching is able to be understood and accepted. Um, the other day, Meg and I took Henry to Cleland um, National Park, and I was struck by a quotation right at the entrance, which I think applies here. It said, you can't save what you don't love, and you can't love what you don't know. And I think that applies to people. So finding out things like the following would be really helpful. What do the people around you believe? What do they know or think they know? What do they value? What do they love and hate? What do they need or believe that they need? What do they aspire to? These questions are vital in understanding how the gospel, if it is to be received, should be presented. If they won't listen to the Bible, why not start by talking about environmental and social justice issues? Or why not start by talking about Iron Man's sacrifice in Endgame? Why not start by talking about people's need to be loved unconditionally? In other words, find the overlap and make a gospel connection. Nick gave us a more comprehensive way of thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's worth briefly revisiting as a refresher. So he told us there are six considerations to take into account when bringing the gospel to people. Um, so two, I've focused mostly on two of these today, which is um, articulate the core of the gospel and find common ground. That's the overlap. Be aware of sacred cows. Identify symbols, myths, and rituals. Embody God's love. And most importantly, listen to the Spirit of God. If we're going to be successful in sharing the gospel, we need to be doing all of these things. So I have a quick exercise for you. This does involve some interaction. I do not apologize for that. Um, to follow Paul's model of contextualization, in a moment, 
I'm going to ask you to turn to a person near you and complete this sentence. People of Mount Barker or Littlehampton or Coles or whatever place you spend your time. People of Mount Barker, I see that you are what? Where will you find the overlap and how will you make a gospel connection? So have a chat for a couple of minutes and then we'll come back. We'll um, have to move on because otherwise we'll be here for, for a long time. Um, so I hope you've been able to come up with some things. The first thing that came to my mind when I thought about this was um, I think about my students and I think I see they, they are very concerned with justice. They are very concerned with justice and um, that would be an excellent place to start. Um, do you have any, any burning thoughts that you think are, are worth sharing? So people of Mount Barker or whatever. What are some things that we might Community point to? Community-minded, yes. Good. Busy. Very busy, very caring. Yeah, so some of these things are like compliments perhaps, but some of them are just observations. And, and you find that overlap and there are good ways to make um, connections to the gospel there. Um, I hope that's useful for you. And, but there's one more thing I have to say. A thing that we need to remember, which I think can make a difference to how we, um, our attitudes towards this. And it's got to do with um, the end of this passage. Given all Paul's efforts in contextualization, he didn't get exactly the reception that one might have liked. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So be prepared to be mocked. Be prepared to hear people say dismissive things like, dead men stay dead. It's kind of what the Athenians said to him. At, um, be prepared also for some people to show some interest but little commitment. But, God willing, be prepared to see a few lives changed. Paul only saw a few souls won to Christ that day in Athens, but remember that everyone is precious to God. So I'll finish by quoting Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And may we do the same. All right. I'm going to pray as we get ready for our next song. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that we have from Paul in sharing the gospel with the people of Athens. I pray that we may then be inspired to share the gospel with the people around us. Amen.